Okay, so a number of people. Raise your hand if you're here and you're from out of town on spring break. So I see our, our George Fox people and we have our Becky representing Western over here. Wendy, what school are you from? Green River. Okay, yeah, that's out of town, sure. Cool. Well, um, hey, you know, uh, I don't know if you guys know this, but um, the role that you play in being here is so important tonight. I mean, not only are you being an encouragement to everyone else who's here, uh, but, you know, it's been said that the gospel is only one generation from dying out. And Thrive is, is meant to be a launch pad. I mean, we're, we're about trying to raise up the next generation of people who are following Christ and who are going to pass that baton onto others so that the gospel won't die. I mean, I don't want to be the generation where, where it just stops with us. And so being here tonight, pressing into your faith, coming to, to know Jesus in a deeper way is something that has eternal significance. So just, you know, well done. Way, way, to, way to be here on a Thursday night. Um, I want to jump right in. We've been in a series on the book of Romans, which is the most comprehensive explanation of the gospel and the whole Bible. And beginning, the, you know, beginning last week, you guys might remember that uh, we mentioned that the, the, the gospel is a little bit like a pair of goggles. Uh, you know, that you have to have goggles on to see what's real. So if you're underwater, you have to have swim goggles if you want to see underwater. If, if you're someone who's a little, like, visually challenged, you need a special pair of goggles we call glasses in order to see what's really real. And the gospel is like a set of goggles. It enables you to see what's really real spiritually. Putting on gospel goggles is like going from black and white to seeing everything in color. And, and that means that, you know, for example, we said last week, if you're in school, that having on a, the gospel goggles changes how you think about what you're studying, that there's a gospel way to think about history and, and psychology and science and business or whatever it is that you study. Or, you know, if you're in the workplace, putting on the gospel means that it also changes how you think about your work, you know, your relationship with your coworkers, your work ethic, how hard of a job you do, all of that. And which is why the tagline for this series on Romans is how the gospel changes everything. And it really does. Last week, we looked at how, what, what the gospel has to say about religion. And we said that, that religious people need the gospel just as much as non-religious people. This week, we're looking at Romans chapter 3, verses 1 through 20. And it's inviting us to look at the gospel, uh, look through the gospel at humanity. What actually is really true about human beings were it not for Jesus? So that's kind of the, 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 the research question for, for the, the next half hour or so. What is actually true about humanity were it not for Jesus? And what we're going to see is pretty conclusive. And in fact, it's going to wrap up this whole section of Romans that we've been looking at that goes from chapter 1, verse 18, all the way to chapter 3, verse 20, which deals with the problem of sin. And in this section, Paul has been playing, basically prosecuting attorney for God. And he's been making a case, a really devastating case, that all people, all humanity are guilty and in need of the gospel. And he's going to finish his case today. And so what, what, what I'm going to do here is in order to sort of grasp where we're at in the map, I'm, I'm going to just do a quick review of where we've been. Uh, then we're going to see how Paul clears the ground for his final argument because he's going to address a couple of challenges that his opponents might raise against him first. And then finally, he'll conclude his case with devastating finality. So uh, I'm going to look at those in turn. We're just going to work through the passages we go along. And uh, here, are your, here are your three points. We're going to see Paul's case condensed or summarized, his case challenged, and then finally, the case closed. 
Uh, so just as we get going here, I just have some names up on the screen. These are just some different voices that have been helpful to me as I prepare, and I just like to give credit where credit is due. There's a big long list there. And uh, now for the, this first thing, the case condensed. You know, condensed means to like to shrink or to summarize, right? So uh, I, I just want to step back and give you the 35,000 foot perspective of where we've been. And if you want to have a key to understanding where we've been, all you've got to do is you've got to imagine this part of the book of Romans as though you're in a courtroom. Imagine that this is a courtroom. And you're not there as an observer. You're not even there as a member of the jury. You're the one on trial. We're the ones on trial. That you and me, the person sitting next to you, all of humanity is the ones being prosecuted. And Paul is our prosecutor. He's basically playing God's prosecuting attorney, and he's been building this airtight case for why humanity is guilty, why we're in need of a savior. And he does this by calling four witnesses to the stand. So the first witness that he calls to the stand is the witness of creation. And that's because in chapter 1, verse 20, he says that everybody, this is like the guy in the jungle to the guy who's like studying the Bible in seminary, everybody can reason from the created world that there is a God. I mean, this is what Aristotle did, and he wasn't even a Christian. The problem, though, is that, that even though we knew this, that we've suppressed God's truth, we've ignored his revelation, and we've exchanged his glory, that we're all rebels in need of saving. So that's the first witness, the witness of creation. Second witness, the witness of condemnation. And that's because in chapter 2, verse 1, Paul says that our problem is not that we just don't keep God's standards, we don't keep our own standards. And this was the whole thing about the, the, the tape recorder, remember this? So, you know, imagine you're born into life, there's an invisible tape recorder around your neck, and every time that you make a moral judgment about something, it gets recorded on the tape recorder. You know, so, so you know, someone swears and you think, oh, you know, man, Christians really shouldn't swear. Or, you, you know... Uh, you're, you're driving along, someone cuts you off. Or, you know, you, the, the politician of the political party that you don't like cuts a corner or, or says something hypocritical, you give them a free pass. All of that goes on the tape recorder. But then, you know, one day you're really angry and you let a curse word fly. Or one day you're in a hurry, you cut someone off on the road. Or one day you see your favorite politician from your favorite party, he does the same thing. He's a total hypocrite. You say, well, but, you know, he's my guy, so I'll let him off the hook. All of that goes on the tape recorder. And so what Paul's basically saying is God is fair. He's saying, look, you know, if you didn't have the Bible, God doesn't need to judge you on the basis of that. If you didn't know who Jesus was, God's not going to judge you on the basis of your knowledge of that. Instead, God is simply going to ask you if you kept your own standards. And to find out, he'll just push play. Wow. <laughs> it's pretty withering. So that's witness number two. Witness number three is the witness of conscience. This is in chapter two, verses 14 and 15. And, the, and here the Bible says that every human being knows through their conscience that there are things that they should do and shouldn't do. And yet we cross that line day after day after day. And then finally, there's one more witness, and that's the witness of the commandments. Because so far, the first three witnesses up there on the screen apply to all people. In fact, we were even saying that, that last week that, that chapter one kind of has more to do with how non-religious pagan people need the gospel, whereas chapter two is all about how religious people need the gospel as well. And this fourth witness has to do with them, with, with religious people, because Paul knew that the religious people in his day, the Jews, had an extra witness that God had given them, and that was the witness of the commandments. You might have noticed these all start with C. I did that so that way you can remember them. I'm on your side. I'm trying to make it helpful. So they all start with C. And this last one applies specifically to, to the Jews, to the religious people of Paul's day. And they thought that they had this free ticket to heaven because they had God's law. They had God's extra special information. And Paul's whole point is, is that, look, 
It's not a matter of having the law. It's a matter of obeying the law. And every single person has broken the law of God. So just look at this. Like in four witnesses, Paul has shown that that all people, non-religious people, religious people, Christians, non-Christians, every single person in humanity needs the gospel. And he's almost ready to just tie a bow on this thing and close his case. Uh, But there's one more thing he has to do first. And that's our second point. So in point number two, uh, this is, this is a, I'm calling this the case challenge because, you know, Paul's a good lawyer, right? You know, a good lawyer knows how to anticipate what people are going to say, like to object to what he has to say. And he's going to like cut them off before they even have the chance to say it. And that's exactly what Paul does. And if uh, you look at our, you know, the first part of our, our chapter here, chapter three, verses one through eight, this is what he does. And so I'm going to read the first four verses that will be up on the screen. So, chapter 3. If you have a Bible, by the way, follow along, because I'm going to kind of be really weaving in and out of this. So, uh, pull one up if you've got one. Chapter 3, Romans, verse 1. What advantage, then, is there in being a Jew? Or what value is there in circumcision? Much in every way. First of all, they have been entrusted with the very words of God. What if some did not have faith? Will their lack of faith nullify God's faithfulness? Not at all. Let God be true and every man a liar, as it is written, so that you may be proved right when you speak and prevail when you judge. So this section has two objections. The whole thing, one through eight, has two objections. And this first one that he's going to talk about has to do with the Jews. And you're asking yourself, well, you know, why? Who cares? I'm not Jewish. Why should I care about this? Well, you know, throughout this book, what Paul has been doing is he's been very aware that he's writing to a specific group of folks. He's writing to a group of Christians at Rome, but the problem is, is that, you know, one group of them is from a Jewish background, and the other group of them is from a Gentile background. And most, most likely what was happening was that there, were all, there was all this bickering going on between these two groups, that the Jewish Christians are there, and they're there probably boasting of the fact that, well, you know, we're better than you Gentile Christians because don't you know we're God's chosen people? But then on the other hand, you got the Gentile Christians who are probably going right back to them and saying, well, you know, we're better than you because at least, you know, we didn't reject our own Messiah like you guys did. And so Paul uses the truth of the gospel to heal a divided church. And by the way, that's what like every good pastor ought to do is to be able to have the wisdom to take biblical truth and to apply it to like real life situations. That's what Paul does. And in this, and so, you know, chapter one, it's all about how the, you know, the, the Gentiles need the gospel. Chapter two, it's all about how the Jews need the gospel. And he's basically saying like, look, you guys are all in the same boat. You guys all need the gospel. So why can't you just get along and pretend like you actually are on the same playing field here? And this objection in chapter three is in, is sort of a similar vein here. And it's an example of Paul setting the record straight when it comes to these two people who are kind of at, you know, at odds with each other, Jews and Gentiles. And uh, the reason we gotta, he has to do that is because of what we looked at last week. If you remember last week, at the very end of chapter 2, uh, Paul said something uh, along these lines here. This is chapter 2, 28 and 29. And he said, A man is not a Jew if he is only one outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a man is a Jew if he is one inwardly, and circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the spirit, not by the written code. Such a man's praise is not from men, but from God. And his point 
is that, you know, look, you Jews are saying that because you guys, like, have the right ethnic background, because you guys were circumcised, which was the special symbol that God had the Jews do, that, that you know, therefore, you guys are, like, somehow God's favorites. But Paul makes the point that it's not a matter of, like, all the religious stuff you do on the outside. What matters is, like, an inward heart change. You can't just be, like, circumcised on the outside. He says, you have, like, what I'm really talking about is, like, a call it a circumcision of the heart. Your heart has to be changed. But here's the issue. At this point, think of what the Jewish Christians might have been saying. They might have tried to make a stubborn last stand that they were saved by their own righteousness. And they might have said something like this. They might have said, you know, look, Paul, who are you to say that being Jewish doesn't matter? I mean, the Jews were, were God's special people. You know, like God chose us. You know, so how can you therefore say that like, it doesn't matter whether or not you're Jewish? And then on the other hand, Think about how you might have responded if you were a Gentile Christian. They might have said, they might have just like tried to rub it in the Jews' faces. They would have said, you know, huh, don't you know, don't you, didn't you hear what Paul said? You know, he just said, being Jewish doesn't matter for salvation, which means that there's nothing special about you Jewish people after all. All that stuff about God singling you guys out to be your, his special nation, you know, promising them all these special promises, all of that's bunk. You Jews don't really have a special place in God's plan after all. See, so do you see how, you know, based on what Paul has said before about how it's all about an inner heart change, that, you know, the, these, these two different groups might have, might have had these, like, really kind of strong reactions. And so Paul takes up this quarrel by asking this question. He says, well, okay, what advantage then is there to being a Jew? Or what value is there in circumcision? And here's the shocker. He doesn't side with either group. You'd think, you know, he'd kind of pick one side or the other, but no, he says they're both wrong. And he gives an answer that would have totally surprised them. So think about this. On the one hand, the Gentiles think that, that since Jews are sinners and Gentiles are sinners, that therefore Jews have no advantage. But look at verse 2. In verse 2, what does he say? He says, what advantage is there to being a Jew? He says, much in every way. And that would have been totally shocking to the Gentiles. But then he shocks the Jews. Because some of the Jews would have expected that because God had chosen them, that they had this advantage with regard to being saved. That that, you know, because God picked us, therefore, you know, we're God's elect, therefore we get this free ticket to heaven. And Paul doesn't say that either. And after all, in, in verse 9, he's going to conclude that all Jews and Gentiles are under sin, so, so that can't be what the advantage is. Instead, in verse 2, he says that, he, he actually tells you the advantage he's talking about. It doesn't have to do with salvation. But what he says is that, first of all, they have been entrusted with the very words of God. So he's saying the Jews have this advantage, but it's not what you think. Now, why is this important? What he's referring to here is he's talking about the Bible. He's saying, you know, look, don't you guys realize that, that like the very Bible you hold in your hands, that you study that has been revealing who Jesus is to you, don't you realize that that was something that God had entrusted to the Jewish people? Like he had given them the law, he had given them the prophets, and, and the law and the prophets couldn't save anybody. But the law could have pointed you to the need for a savior. The prophets could have pointed you to the fact that a savior was coming. You know, just think about all of those verses you read at Christmas time from like, you know, the prophet Isaiah, you know, behold, a virgin will give birth to a, to a son. They'll call him Emmanuel. Like all throughout the, the Old Testament, God had taught the Jewish people and anyone else who would have read those scriptures that you need a savior, that a savior's on the way. And so what that means is that with regard to salvation, the Jews didn't have any advantage over the Gentiles, but that does, doesn't mean that they didn't have an advantage over them with regard to mission. 
God had wanted the Jewish people to basically be his special missionaries, that they were going to take the knowledge of God that he had given them so that they could share it with the rest of the world. And I just want to show you, this might all seem like very, like, you know, very abstract and intellectual, but let me show you, let me show you two reasons, you know, just sort of two applications of, of what this actually, why this actually matters. The problem here is that the people in Paul's day, they sort of thought that, well, if, you, if, you, if God has kind of privileged you in one area, then he's privileged you in all areas. But, but the first thing that this tells us is, is, is when it comes to your own life, don't fret over your calling. Don't fret over your calling. And you're probably wondering where I've got this. Let me just first of all say that, you know, when, it's, when it comes to your calling, this whole idea of, you know, what's my purpose? What's my mission? What's my calling? Oh my goodness, gracious me. Don't, Christians just love to freak out about this. I freak out about this myself. You know, so the questions are things like, you know, where should I go to school? Or, you know, whom should I marry? Or what job should I take? Or, you know, what does God want me to do? What's the purpose he has for me and for my life? And those are all, you know, those are all really good questions. They take a lot of prayer, a lot of wisdom, a lot of just like, man, Lord, I need your help to know what to do. But what they don't demand is we don't have to completely like lose our heads about them. And, and, and yet, that's what we wind up doing anyway. And this is probably very likely true of Paul's original readers, too. Because imagine here that you're a Gentile reading this. You know, so what, you say, if the Jews have no advantage with regard to salvation? But they still have this advantage with regard to, like, their mission, their calling. I mean, God gave them this special mission, didn't he? And doesn't that mean that God loves the Jews more than he loves Gentiles like me? Don't you see it? Like, they, they, they might have thought that. But the reality is is that everyone's call is different, and that's a good thing. And that the thing that God has called you to do, the thing that he wants to do in and through your life, has nothing to do with how much he loves you. You know, so for example here, like it's true. You know, the Jews had this special calling. And actually that calling was to bless not themselves, but the Gentiles. But actually, did you know that later on in this book, I don't know if like, we have any like, Bible students here. We have at least one Bible student here, and I think Devonte he probably counts as a Bible student too. So, so if, 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 you guys are, you know, if you guys are into this stuff, then, then listen carefully, because what you'll find out later on in this book is that, that actually God has given the Gentiles a special calling too, which is, believe it or not, to bless the Jews. Like, did you know if you're a Gentile here, if you're like, non-Jewish, then like, God wants to use you to bless Jewish people? Isn't that crazy? So if you looked at uh, Romans 9 through 11, one of the things Paul says there is that he actually has like, blessed the Gentiles so that like, his own people, so that the Jewish people are going to be so jealous of like, wow, look at all of these like, riches of salvation that God has given to like, all of these people that we thought were just totally worthless dogs. Paul says that like, God did that so that way the Jews would see that and they would be envious and so that like, by the blessing that God gave us, that they might come to salvation. So, crazily enough, like, God gave them a special call. He gave Gentiles a special call. But here's what we do. We take, sal we, we take like, salvation and mission, and we mix them up. Because, you know, as human beings, we're always so convinced that in order to, for, for God to love us, there's something we have to do. You know, that's mission. That, that in order to, to, to earn God's love, that salvation, we have to do something for God, that's mission. You know, remember what the, the, the guy in, in the book of Acts said, the Philippian jailer, he falls on his face. He says, you know, what must I do to be saved? Human beings are always looking for something to do to try to earn God's favor. And, and, and this happens every day. I mean, like, and a lot of times people who are like, you know, in full-time ministry can, do, can, can be the worst culprits of the lot. You might, for example, say, well, you know, man, like I get to be the senior pastor of a megachurch. So therefore, I must be more faithful to God because look at this amazing mission God has given me. 
Or, you know, because God has called me to like this minimum wage job, that must mean that, you know, he must not really love me. Or maybe he's like punishing me for something because if I, you know, if I really loved him, then he'd give me like this amazing work to do. But God doesn't love you because he's given you some great work to do. You know, he, he doesn't love you because of anything that you can like give to him. It's not because like God needs you to finish his plan. God loves Gentiles. He loves Jews just as much as, as one another. He loves a person who has like this amazing calling to like, you know, go share the gospel all around the world as much as he loves someone who, who never leaves their hometown. So don't mix up salvation and mission. Don't mix up the thing that God wants to do through your life with the love that God has for your life. You know, like, I personally wish that, how can, you know, I'll put it this way. How cool would it be to have a calling like, you know, like the calling a guy like Billy Graham had? You, know, you guys know that he had the opportunity to speak to more people in person in human history about Jesus than any other person. I mean, God used this guy to bring millions of people to Jesus. I mean, I look at that and I think, man, you know, that's so glorious. And again, in comparison to that, like, man, like the thing that God has called me to, that just seems like so pathetic. That seems so small, so minuscule. You know, man, if only I had like made different choices in my life, well, then maybe God would have like allowed me to do something as awesome and as amazing as that. Do you ever think that? Like when I was picking a college, I had this big, long, confusing train wreck of, of, of just questioning about, Lord, where do I go to college? Do I go to this college? Do I go to that college? Am I obeying you? Am I listening to you? Am I doing it right? And in the end, I, I, I picked a school, and I wasn't sure if it was the right choice, and then I debated that over and over again in my brain. And, and sometimes I've thought to myself, man, you know, what would have happened if I had, like, done this other thing? Would God have, like, allowed me to do these amazing things that I would never have gotten to do otherwise? But what I want to tell you is, is that when it comes to the answer to that question, I have no idea. Like, I have no idea what would have happened. And I actually have gotten to a place in my life where it doesn't really matter to me anymore. Because God's calling on your life isn't a reward for being more holy than other people. You know, it's whatever he calls you to do is a gift of his grace. And whatever he calls you to do is not about whatever that thing is. It's about getting to know not the calling, but the caller. Knowing Jesus, knowing the one who calls you, That's where fulfillment comes from. So if you're beating yourself up because you feel like, man, you're a letdown because you're not doing like some great thing for God, then can I just suggest to not, you don't need to fret over that. And in fact, I mean, very often the things that, you know, we imagine as being great things for God, most of the time, I know at least for me, that that kind of comes from a place of pride where I say to myself, man, you know, like, I'm like this amazing undiscovered talent. And it's only a matter of time before God discovers me and, and like does this amazing thing with me. So if you're beating yourself up because of that, then I, let me just tell you from, from this passage tonight that you don't need to do that. that. That God loves to use our lives in just the way that he wants. He had one calling for the Jews. He had another calling for the Gentiles. And both of those gave glory to him. So there's no need to, to fret about your calling. There's no need to compare your calling. Instead, You can just look at where you are in life and say, wow, Jesus, thank you so much for where you have me right now and that you want to use me just as I am. So that's the first thing. And then one more thing that's actually probably even a little bit more practical is don't give up on God because of hypocrites. Don't give up on God because of hypocrites. Now, why do I bring this up? Well, I bring this up because 
you know, the, the first part of what we've been looking at is saying that, you know, God had this, this special missional call for, his, for the Jewish people, and they were supposed to be these lights to all the other people around them. But the sad thing is that they botched this calling, that instead of stewarding God's word by sharing it with the Gentiles, they disobeyed that word. They misrepresented God, and they nearly made God a laughingstock of all the other nations around them. And very possibly, you have seen other religious people do the exact same thing. I mean, it could very well be that you're here and you've grown up in a family that's professed Christ, but you know they've acted in ways that have been shameful and that you're just about ready to give up on God, to give up on the church, because how could people as reprehensible as that actually be God's special people? And Paul has a response for you in this passage. So if you look at the next couple of verses in three and four, he says, you know, man, it's true that that, God, that, that Israel was disobedient to what God had called them to do, that they, they misrepresented God. But that doesn't invalidate that advantage that God gave them. It doesn't eliminate them from God's plan. You know, Paul says that even if some did not have faith, their lack of faith won't nullify God's faithfulness. Because even if every man is a liar, God is still true. Or in other words, like God is still faithful. God is still good even when his people are faithless. And what that means is that as a result, there's nothing in these verses that suggests that Israel is no longer God's chosen people, that God will no longer use them as he's always intended to do. And you can study other places in the Bible that talk about that. But it matters to us because according to Paul, even the most horrible, hypocritical religious person in the world can't leave the tiniest tarnish on the goodness and glory of God. Isn't that cool? And that means, by the way, that you can't either. I mean, I know that there, <laughs> um, I actually just got a Facebook message the other day from this friend in college that I, I think two years ago, I sent her this, this message on Facebook because I was sitting in church and I heard this sermon about like asking forgiveness of people that you need to ask forgiveness for. And I instantly thought of this person because I was like, oh my gosh, like when I was in college and we were doing this group project together, I just was a jerk. Like I treated her so badly. And I just like felt this need to apologize. And so I did. And then, you know, two years of silence. I'm probably thinking, oh, she's just giving me the cold shoulder and I'm just never going to ever be in her good graces again. And then I get a message, you know, a couple weeks ago and all, and all is well. <laughs> There's been reconciliation. But, you know, it, it, the amazing thing is, is that God is not dependent on us. <laughs> you know, like when, when, when we are hypocrites, God is still faithful because he cannot deny himself. And man, like, if you have been someone who has experienced hypocritical Christianity, if you have experienced people taking the name of Jesus and not representing that name well, then, then we as Christians should fall on our face and apologize to you. I want to apologize to you. But I also want to share just the amazing news of this passage, is that no matter how terribly God's people may represent him, the gospel is is that God is faithful even when we are faithless. And I actually saw an example of this just this morning. This morning, I, I came across this article by, by a pastor named John Piper, who, uh, believe it, you guys know Devontae and Grace getting married this summer. Devontae invited John Piper to their wedding. I asked if I could sit next to him. We'll see if he shows up. <laughs> anyway, this morning, I came across this article by this pastor named John Piper, and, and a woman had written a question into him, and it was about a guy who was a father in, in, I think it was Colorado or something like this. And a couple of years ago, he, he like murdered his wife and his unborn child and two of his daughters. 
And, and, and the questioner was all indignant because while the man was in prison, he claimed that he had found Jesus. And her question was, well, man, how could God forgive someone who had done so much wrong and allow a guy like him to identify as one of God's people? And John Piper, he just gives this amazing answer, I thought. He said, you know, look, after kind of unfolding all of these different verses of what the Bible says about, like, how God values justice and mercy, he asks her this, like, mind-blowing question. And he says, am I more indignant that a murderer may be saved and go to heaven than I am amazed that I might be saved and go to heaven? In other words, what he's saying is that the truth is that all of us are hypocrites, all of us misrepresent God in one way or another. And God's amazing, unchanging response to our disobedience is to offer us forgiveness. We can't tarnish his goodness. We can't tarnish his goodness. And so sometimes you got to do a little bit of what Zacchaeus did. You know, Zacchaeus was this short little guy. And he's standing in his village and he hears that Jesus is coming through. But there, there's all these crowds of Pharisees that are, that are blocking the way so he can't see Jesus. Because he's, you know, he's a short, short little guy. And so he climbs up in this tree so that he can see over the crowd and see Jesus. And sometimes you have to kind of look over the crowd of religion. You've got to like look over the crowd of hypocrisy and actually see the, see the real Jesus. Because hypocrisy can't tarnish him. So let me just say, hypocrites don't let other hypocrites destroy their faith in God. Hypocrites don't let other hypocrites destroy their faith in God. He is faithful even when we are faithless because that's how great his mercy is. Isn't that cool? And, and man, how do you like that? That's like, this is like only the first four verses of what we're looking at. Uh, but don't worry, I'm going to move quickly through the rest of this stuff here. Really quickly, I'm going to read verses 5 through 8, which is the second objection that he raises here. Uh, in verses 5 through 8, he says, If our unrighteousness brings out God's righteousness more clearly, what shall we say? That God is unjust in bringing his wrath on us? I'm using a human argument here. Certainly not. If that were so, how could God judge the world? Someone might argue, if my falsehood enhances God's truthfulness and so increases his glory, why am I still condemned as a sinner? Why not say, as we are being slanderously reported as saying, and as some claim that we say, let us do evil that good may result, their condemnation is deserved. So just really quick, Paul has to take up another challenge now because he realizes that, you know, based on what he said, you know, he said in verse 4 that like when we're faithless, God comes across looking more faithful. Well, then he kind of takes on the question, well, wait a minute, like if our like faithlessness actually helps God look good, well, then why does he punish us? You know, like our sin actually makes him look out, makes him look even more glorious. And so, you know, shouldn't we keep on sinning so that good may result? And Paul's answer, of course, is no. <laughs> sin is sin. I mean, if, it's, if God is able to take our sin and miraculously work it for good, then that's just a bonus. So uh, you might know that these two objections, Paul's going to unpack a little later in this book. You know, the first one about whether the Jews still have a place in God's plan, hold your horses, Romans 9 through 11 is all about that. And then this next one about whether we should just like keep on sinning so that grace may increase, it's chapter 6. So uh, now that Paul's kind of cleared the ground, he's dealt with these two objections, we can finally make a run, run for home plate here. And that takes us to point number three, which is the case closed. The case closed. He summoned his four witnesses. He's dealt with his two challenges, and now he can close the case. And to wrap this up, I'm going to read the end of this, uh, the end of this section from verses 9 through 20. I want to show you four moves Paul makes, and then I'll show you how he concludes his article, his argument, and closes the case. So here's 9 through 20. What shall we conclude then? 
Are we any better? Not at all. We have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under sin. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Next slide. (laughs) Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. And the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. So four moves, four moves he makes, and then the case will be closed. First of all, in verse 9, he levels a charge. He says, what should we conclude? You know, in other words, look at all this evidence I've given you. Look at all of the stuff I've said over these last couple of chapters about you know, you know how, we, how we're hypocrites, how we, we judge others for the very things we do ourselves. What's the conclusion of all of this? And in verse 9, his conclusion is, Jews and Gentiles alike are all under sin. Jews and Gentiles alike are all under sin. Or if you want another way to quote that, just think about the, one of the most famous verses in this whole book, which is Romans 3.23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And what that means is that Jewish people, Gentile people, pagan people, religious people, church-going people, non-church-going people, Catholic people, Protestant people, Orthodox people, Jewish people, Muslim people, Hindu people, Buddhist people, secular people, rich people, poor people, educated people, uneducated people, kings, beggars, warriors, cowards, Republicans, Democrats, conservatives, liberals, red, yellow, black, or white, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's the charge. That's the charge. This week, I'm really feeling like a sinner because I'm committing the sin of envy. My whole family, except for my sister and her, her husband, they're married, the rest of my family, they're all in Hawaii. They went on vacation without me. I'm here suffering in, in balmy Washington State rather than roasting in the nice warm Hawaii weather. Well, let me just tell you that, that when Paul says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, it's a little bit like trying to swim from here to Hawaii. You know, one guy might wade out a little bit and, and, and kind of go a few feet, then he'll drown. And then another person who's a better swimmer will go another couple of hundred yards, maybe a mile or two, then they'll drown. And then finally, Michael Phelps, you know, Olympic gold medalist swimmer tries swimming to Hawaii, even he will eventually drown because it is just as impossible to swim to Hawaii as it is for us to be righteous on our own in God's sight. You know, a Mother Teresa might seem to make it further than an Adolf Hitler, but beneath the bar of God's justice, we are all doomed and lost. That's the charge. And then his second move is the indictment. And this is what he does in verses 10 through 18. And in the indictment, he gives a specific list of the crimes on record against us by citing the Old Testament. Do you notice that when Paul is making this argument, he uses the most powerful source to do that, which is the Word of God. He uses Scripture to bring conviction. 
And this is such a withering move because, you know, he knows that by quoting the Bible itself, he is cutting down any last-ditch efforts by religious people to exonerate themselves. You know, they can't look at this now and say, well, you know, all of those verses in our own Bibles, that applies to other people. Paul says, no. Verse 19, we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law. In other words, this applies to religious people. These verses accuse not just Gentiles, but Jews. And just look at this category of crimes that he lists. First of all, if anyone were to ask the question, is there anyone righteous? Four times this passage answers no one. Just look at this. There is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. No one who seeks God. There is no one who does good, not even one. And this is so radical because it sure seems like there are a lot of people who seek God. I mean, think about devotees of other religions who give their whole lives to seeking God in monasteries or giving to the poor or in other forms of like religious stuff. This verse is saying, these verses are saying is that in reality, no one truly seeks after God, no matter how hard it might seem like they do. What they're saying is that when it seems like we're seeking God, what we're seeking is God's blessing or God's gifts. I mean, unless you have the Spirit of God living inside of you who actually gives you new desires and actually gives you a genuine desire to know God for his own sake, that no one truly seeks God. And that the only way, the only, only way that anyone truly seeks God is if God has sought for you first. He loved us. We love him because he first loved us. The only reason that someone can seek God for who he is is because God has first sought you. Or, you know, it also seems like there are a lot of people who do good. I mean, there are tons of non-Christian philanthropists and, and humanitarians and charity workers. And in fact, if we're saved by sheer grace, then it's actually extremely possible that a non-Christian may actually be a better person than a Christian, as crazy as that is, because God doesn't save us on the basis of what we've done. He saves us just because of sheerly his mercy. But what this verse is getting at is that in reality, something can look good, like a good deed on the outside, without really being a good deed on the inside. Because in Christianity, your motive matters. All our deeds that look good on the outside are done for selfish, selfish motives, to impress other people, to, or God, or, or even ourselves. The Bible says that there is no one who does good. But because sin affects people in, in, in every possible way, there's actually a second category of crime. So the charges in, in the verses we just saw, verses 10 through 12, those all have to do with a person's character, what a person is. But now in 13 through 14, he looks at another set of charges that have to do with a person's speech, what a person says. And the Bible says that our mouths are full of cursing, that our throats are open graves. You know, one, one commentator said that, that, you know, in the Eastern world, the, the, the grave of a buried person was sometimes left open, which was dangerous because you could accidentally fall into it in the middle of the night. And, and maybe you guys know people whose words are so toxic that to listen to them feels like bringing death. And then finally, there's a person's conduct, what a person does. So this is verses 15 and 16. And he speaks of like our feet, you know, which speaks of how we, how we walk. He talks about our way, which is sort of the, the things that we do. And he says that our walk, the things that we do, it's characterized by violence, by ruin, by misery, and lack of peace. 
the way of peace they do not know. And oh my goodness, how true it is just looking around in our world, how our world does not know peace. So in what we are, in what we say, in what we do, all humanity is guilty before God. And it's possible that, you know, looking at this big long list, that you, you might look at that and say, well, I, I don't really know that this is entirely true of me. I mean, Paul says that their mouths are full of cursing. I've never even uttered one single swear word in my, in my whole life. But, you know, let me just read you the way that someone has put this. That in this passage, what, what, what Paul is doing is that he's describing not so much what we do as much as what we are. This is a picture of yours and mine of us apart from Jesus Christ. You may say, I've never taken an oath upon my lips, but it is there. And if you had been born in some families and trained like some people, it probably would have come forth. So this is describing our hearts. And sometimes our tr the true nature of ourselves, it it's so deep down that we don't even know it until God takes the light of, of the gospel and shines it into the places that we can't even see. So that's the indictment. His third move now is the, is the defense. Because in, in a normal human court, once the indictment's been read, there's, there's an opportunity for the convicted person to say something for himself or for herself. And that's because, you know, th th that's a necessary step in case there's been like a miscarriage of justice. And it allows the person one last chance to defend themselves. But God is a perfect judge that there's no injustice with him, which is why in verse 19, the only defense that humanity can give is complete and utter silence. Every mouth will be stopped and the whole world held accountable to God because on the day of judgment, no one will have anything to say. Every eye will see that the only way God has allowed anyone to end up in hell is literally over his dead body. And every tongue will confess that God has been perfectly righteous in how he has dealt with humanity. And then finally, his fourth and final move to close the case is he gives the verdict. And it's in verse 20. And it's devastating. He says, therefore, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. You cannot be saved by the law. Instead, he summarizes once and for all what the law is when he says the purpose of the law is ne was never to save, but rather through the law, we become conscious of sin. That God's law, it's like a mirror. It can tell you that your face is dirty, but it can't clean your face. Which is why you, will, you, will, you know that you will have learned what God has wanted you to learn from these last couple of weeks in this, this book if you've come to the end of the section that we're finishing tonight, and at last you can say, I know that I am a sinner. If you can say that honestly, then that will have been what this passage is all about. Or, you know, put the verdict another way. No one will be declared righteous through their own works. The way that you know that you're growing spiritually is that you're able to look at all the good things that you've done and confess all of these good deeds are but filthy rags before God. Because all are guilty before a holy God. That's the verdict of this book. And that's the end of this first section. It's not a very fun place to end, but don't lose hope. Because let me point out one more detail in what we read 
that when I actually realized this, it just blew my mind. Because one of the things that you'll, you'll, you'll notice is that there's been, there's been the charge. There's been the indictment. There's been the defense. There's been the verdict. And in any other court, the one thing that would come next would be the sentence. In any other court, you get the, the charge, the indictment, the defense, the verdict, and then down comes the judge's gavel, and the terrifying sentence is, is passed on the person. But in this chapter, there is no sentence. There's no sentence. And the reason for that is the very next verse. In the very next verse, chapter 3, verse 21, the courtroom doors open, and in runs Jesus Christ. And with a fire in his face, and with passion in his eyes, he stares down the whole courtroom and he says, Wait, your honor, I have new evidence to bring before the court. And he holds up his nail-pierced hands. And so we'll begin the greatest judicial reversal in all history. As Paul, in, this, in these next couple of passages, will begin to expound what Jesus did on the cross. How he utterly dealt with all of our guilt all of our sin, all of our shame, so that we would never have to come under sentence, so that we would never have to come into judgment. Now, here's the, here's the bummer. We're going to get there, but we're not going to get there tonight. And in fact, we're not even going to get there in the next two Thursdays because we're going we're to take a break from this book for the next two Thursdays, which means I'm doing something horrible. This is just like such mal pastoral malpractice. For four weeks, I'm leaving you stuck in sin. So just sit, sit, sit tight. You're going to be stuck in sin for the next four weeks while we just have some other speakers come through. But we're going to pick it up again on April 18th and uh, keep plumbing the depths of this glorious book. So just sit tight, stand in awe, and praise Jesus. The story does not end here. Can I get an amen? Amen. 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 Let me pray. Uh, dear Heavenly Father, would you just bring us to a place of realizing our need for you? Lord, thank you that after the law comes the gospel. Thank you, Lord, that after the bad news comes the good news. Thank you that Jesus has run into the courtroom, that he has shown to our judge his nail-pierced hands, that he has said to the judge, it was finished, it is finished. And because of that, we can know salvation and relationship with the God of the universe. So Lord, would you be with us as we discuss these things in small groups in Jesus' name. Amen.